welcome to the Unsettling Knowledge podcast. In today's episode, we learn how the legacy of empire has shaped the archives, the collections and buildings that hold formal historical records of the past used in much historical research. We ask how we can navigate them and acknowledge the traces of empire in the archives. Whose voices and histories do they hold and honor and whose do they conceal or distort? Yes, and who has access to the archives to uncover those voices or identify the silences? So today we discuss how we, as historians and archivists, can work together to decolonize the archive and make their contents accessible for all. What assumptions about objectivity and truth do we need to rethink when dealing with archival resources, particularly when dealing with historic depictions of people of color within the archive? In what ways do my privileges and assumptions shape my own ability to navigate the archives as a historian and to acknowledge its limits? And a current and pressing issue, is it possible to open up the archives in a truly meaningful way? Do digital archive help us with this endeavor? Today, we have two wonderful guests to open up these discussions with us and share their knowledge and experience. I'm Rachel. I work at Utrecht University and I work on the history of France, racialization and empire. And I was super excited to read the end of your book, Robin, and see the reference to Josephine Baker, because that's about where mine starts. So that was pretty awesome. Robin, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, Hi, I'm Robin Mitchell. I'm an associate professor in history at California State University Channel Islands. Um, I do work on 19th century France, and I teach on scandals, crime, race, gender, colonialism, and imperialism. Stevie? I'm Stevie, uh, Stevie Nolte. uh, I work for Build and Geluid on a project called Sounds Familiar, uh, dealing with coloniality in the archives, but also coloniality in our archival practices. And I don't refer to myself as an archivist. I don't have the background, but I do uh, feel that, uh, feel a responsibility to make the archive something that is a representation of uh, what we have in this country. Uh, And by this, I mean the Netherlands. Not everyone's calling from there, (laughs) Uh, calling it from there. But um, yeah, I think that I have a more of an activist approach as, uh, as dealing with the archives. And that is more of my background as well. Uh, and I'm very curious to hear all of your uh, insights and perspectives on um, what you're going to share today. Yeah. Uh, hello, I'm, I'm Frank Garrett. I'm an assistant professor at uh, Utrecht University, and I research African international history. So I look at how African diplomats and politicians in the 50s and 60s uh, thought about the world and engaged uh, politicians in the global north. Uh, and in my, um, in my own work, I have been to a lot of different archives uh, on the African continent, in the US, in Europe. Uh, but I think it would be good uh, to sort of explain to our listeners, or at least sort of try and give a definition of what archives actually are. As a student, when I went there for the first time, I thought this was something where, you know, old grandpas and grandmothers uh, researched their family tree. Um, but as a researcher, I've developed a little bit of a different definition of what the archives actually are. So could you give us your take of what the archives are to you? How would you define an archive, particularly in light of the fact that so many uh, archives are 
um, online nowadays, but a lot of it isn't. So what is your definition of an archive? Well, I thought archives were mythic and intimidating before I knew what they were. And now that I know what they are, I still find them mythic and intimidating. Um, they're places and spaces of primary documents. That's it at um, sort of the most uh, basic level. As historians, it's the archive is supposed to be at the heart of where we go. That's where the primary documents are supposed to be. And while I think um, online is important in terms of equity, I don't think anything beats going into a space and pulling out those documents and holding them in your hands. Just like I tell my students, go to the places where you study because it looks different. And so I love the fact that there are things that we can get online. It makes my job easier. But um, I think negotiating the archive and negotiating archivists are a really important skill set. Stevie, as an archivist, do you want to speak to that? As a non-archivist, <laughs> I, I, I always am in this, uh, in this group with people that are uh, from uh, like archival professors or ar archivists and, and I always feel very much intimidated that I don't have that background. I come from an art historian uh, background. And um, but I do think that what I found very interesting about archives is that there's this notion of, uh, of course, a source of information, but also sometimes while in art, we very much see it as an object or a form of uh, information that is subjective. And with archives, uh, sometimes we see it as a truthful or objective source, while sometimes the uh, archive holder and how and where it is stored, like the physicality of it, says just as much about the material or the subjects in the archive. And I think that it's a very interesting thing. And I, in my line of work and in the project that I do, I try to rethink what, it, what are the responsibilities that uh, holders of archives have, and especially working for the... Um, Netherlands Institute of Sound and Vision uh, in audiovisual heritage, uh, I think it's very valuable to think about our responsibility, what we store, how we contextualize it, uh, but also how we deconstruct our own biases uh, within our archive. And um, I think my sort of insider outsider, or maybe the other way around, uh, my view hopefully can... Um, I don't know, question a lot of things. I think that that's my role um, as a non-archivist. I think it's, uh, it's interesting that you both raise this issue of feeling intimidated by the archive. And it's, it's an experience I also have when talking to students and sending them into the archive for the first time. So I'm just wondering why, why is it then that we, we keep going back, uh, uh, Robin? Like what, what, draws on, what draws us into the archive? Um, well, as historians, we don't have a choice. That's where we go. Um, I think Stevie is right, correct, um, absolutely correct. Um, and as a non-archivist, you're right on the money. Um, the idea is the people who work there have a tremendous amount of power. Um, it, they are the difference between you potentially getting a document and never seeing it. Um, they are often experts in certain areas and so can lead you to places 
um, that you hadn't thought of. Um, but, you know, bridging that gap for me specifically um, was very difficult because I didn't really know what I was doing when I first got there. And, you know, my professor at Berkeley was like, go play in the archives. And I thought, what? Um, and so um, I didn't know how to approach it. And so when I got there, you see all these very serious people um, with these huge boxes and these, you know, documents from the 17th century. And I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And so that doesn't help. But, you know, as historians, I don't have a choice. You go to the archives. I need my students to go there. I need to go there. What we need to do is teach them how to use them differently. I can relate to that so much. And I was incredibly lucky, actually, a shout out to my wonderful thesis supervisor, Laura Freda, who literally sat me in her office and walked me through the archive. She said, then you'll go down this stairway. Then you'll need this letter. Then, Because I, I worked in the BNF and some of the French archives a lot. And they can be really, they can really demonstrate their access and their gatekeeping to you in no uncertain fashion. Um, so that, that resonates a lot with me. But I also had to look beyond the document archives, Robin, and I know your work did that. And I, I wonder, Stevie, if you can sort of talk about the sound and uh, the build and cloud, like, should we just be looking at documents? And do audio visual sources have the same limitations? Um, I think it, it brings different uh, challenges, because with audiovisual archive, especially with, with moving image, we tend to see it as a form of objectivity because it records what is happening in front of us. If something is written down, we we maybe know that it's it's subjective, but we don't maybe are not at, as aware of uh, that it's still through somebody's eyes or somebody's lens if we're looking at a moving image. Uh, and what is not in the frame is just as important, and that is what is uh, being depicted in the center. And I find it very challenging sometimes that there's this, there's a lot of information. And of course, we're thinking about terms of access. We're thinking of, uh, there's, there's a lot of buzzwords about, for example, decolonization and um, opening up the archives. But still, that goes beyond the fact that these these materials are still property of someone or or some institution, and it's the the access it has to be granted to begin with, and online makes it easier, but it's not. Uh, maybe it's also a very Western notion to think that opening it up digitally means that everyone can access it access it in the same ways and has the same tools and resources uh, to get out of the archives what they would like to research and produce the knowledge that they find valuable. I think the idea about um, the gatekeeping is really, really important. Um, I also think, you know, as somebody who reads documents and then reads paintings, you know, reads sculptures, I read um, lots of different things. And so in doing that, you know, I never walked into the archive thinking that there was some kind of truth there. Right. So I don't know if that is, you know, based on my own location or if it's part of my training. But, you know, I always um, am skeptical of everything I see because um, someone and it's usually a he has decided what's going in that box and what's not going in that box. And so 
Um, Stevie's absolutely right. We have to learn how to read silences. Um, decolonizing the archives to me only works when the archives on board, right? If they're not on board, what are we doing? So we as scholars have to do different kind of reading of what we are using to talk about history. I totally agree. And I think that's that's one of my my own personal experiences of of using the archive. Hearing you guys now talk about it, I think what intimidates me is this gatekeeping function. I think being overwhelmed by the documents that has never really happened to me. I like I like box like twenty four boxes on a cart and reading them and like going through them and being overwhelmed and not understanding a thing. I, I love that experience, uh, but what I hate with a passion is having to negotiate my way into the archive. Um, and this, I mean, I have two very similar experiences in two very, very different places. Um, so the Belgian Foreign Affairs Archives, I'm trying to write a book, a new book on, on Belgian Empire. Uh, it used to be run by somebody who was very, um, um, she wanted to keep us out of the archive, essentially. So you had to tell her what you were researching, and then she would give you the document that she thought fit with uh, the, the topic you were researching. Uh, this was, I mean, this was insane. This was terrible. Uh, now access has improved, but it has improved not because a policy changed, but basically because she disappeared and the people who are running the archive now are committed to open access, are incredibly um, helpful, but they're not trained archivists. They're, they're civil servants from, uh, from the Foreign Affairs Archive. So there is access, but there's, you know, again, it isn't the access you would want. Um, so there's that. And then um, the other experience I've had is in the National Archives in, in Ghana, in Accra, they hire uh, interns to give you the documents. And there is a procedure where you can ask for three documents at the same time, which we know as historians is not a lot, right? But you can get more documents if you have a good rapport with the interns. So you have to like you know, bring in a little gift and talk to them and, and make sure they like you, which in general is a good strategy, but it is not something uh, that that comes to me naturally. Um, it is something I have to sort of, I, I need a little bit of time to warm up to people. Uh, and that is and that is an incredibly important skill because we you talked about skill uh, skills, Robin. That's an incredibly interesting and helpful skill to have is this interpersonal, like understanding you know, understanding what might compel somebody to bend the rules a little bit, give you a little bit more access, tell you where the interesting nuggets are. Uh, so, and this isn't bound to, because there's often this conception that access in, in the global north is somehow better than in the global south. And I, I've had these experiences in both parts of the world. So the, the experience is, in a way is very human. Uh, and I think that is what intimidates, intimidates me the most. I laugh because that is um, absolutely hilarious. Um, I'm told I am incredibly charming in French in ways that I am not in English because you have to be if you want to get what you need. So I tend, you know, I tend to be much more, uh, much more friendly and, and just very charming and a little bit flirtatious. But the one thing that I found and one of the things that I've tried to pass on to my students is get out of the capital. Um, the best experiences I have had in archives have been in the smaller ones. Uh, Paris was not a great place for me, um, but Aix and Nantes were amazing 
places for me. Um, you know, I went back to Nantes, um, I think five years ago, I'd been gone for five years and I walked in and I put my stuff down and they were like, ah, black women in France. And I was like, what? So, I mean, it was incredible because I was in there every day for a couple of weeks. Um, and they got to know who I was and I dropped off, um, chocolates before, I left and, you know, there are things you do. There are ways of behaving. And while I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, I think it is, you're right. It is important to be um, kind and um, accommodating. Um, figuring out how the archives work in that way was a steep learning curve for me. Yeah, same here. Stevie, how does this feel hearing this as an archivist or a non-archivist who works in an archives that is in a process of interrogating its its uh, institutions? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I I'm listening to what you're saying about what intimidates you about the archive. What intimidated me actually is hearing um, someone talk about certain subjects or objects in the archive from a very depersonalized view as if it was a thought-provoking exercise. And I think that says a lot about um, maybe the Western notion of, of objectivity, of um, maybe Eurocentrism, um, because... Can you say more about that? Yeah. Because I'm not sure if I'm getting what you're where you're going. Yeah, because, for example, if I hear someone talk about the history of my ancestors, but it is a curator or an archivist who studied it for maybe 20 years and maybe is even uh, uh, an expert on it. How does it feel to hear that uh, talked to you about? Uh, well, this information or this, um, this colonial legacy is partly in your veins. And that was intimidated to me. I always feel inferior to that academic notion of um, being in charge of the archive or being rightfully there. And um, so I sometimes see this depersonalized view on the archives and the material. Um, I don't know. It, 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 it sometimes goes hand in hand with... Um, sometimes this, the fetishization of the objects, uh, like finding a hair somewhere and, or seeing um, something that reminded of the environment where it came from that is not uh, described, but it's very much present in how it's preserved. And even though those give context, sometimes to, fe to me, these things can feel very violent or emotional that I when I'm in the archives I'm, I'm seeing like some most of the time as an only person of color there reflecting on colonial material there's a discrepancy in how we experience it that to me is the most intimidating part you know that um actually links directly Robin I should probably ask you to read it out but I have it in front of me to something that Robin writes about in her book Venice Noir and she quotes Marisa Fuentes, who writes about the heartbreaking constructions of enslaved women in archival records. Uh, and Robin, you write that this violence is transferred from the enslaved bodies to the, well, Marisa Fuentes writes, 
the violence is transferred from the enslaved bodies to the documents that count, condemn, assess, and evoke them. And we receive them in this condition. And that quotation just really stuck with me. And uh, and you, I've heard you speak about this from your personal position as well. So I, I wondered if you wanted to respond to Stevie <laughs> from your personal experience in the archives. And I think you're working on a new project, Archival Traces of Black Women, right? Um, sort of. Yeah, but I'm I'm still looking I'm looking for them and not finding them in the archives, um, which is not surprising. Um, but I understand, you know, part of what Fuentes is talking about is that we're receiving these documents. But what you know, what she doesn't sort of keep going on is that um, sometimes that trauma is also imparted on us, right? So I don't ever, I am never dispassionate when I walk into an archive. I don't have the luxury of being dispassionate, right? Um, and, you know, Stevie is talking about sort of receiving these things that are violent. And I understand that. Um, I still want to see them. Um, and I still want to try to um, negotiate them in some kind of way, even in that violence. And um, sometimes I'm able to do that and sometimes I'm not. Um, Sarah Bartman's body cast is violent. Um, it's also probably the last thing her body touched. And so I wanted to pay my respects to that, not as an object of violence, but as an object that had touched her. So I think we all, um, you know, while I understand what you're talking about and while I agree with it completely, um, part of, I, I believe, uh, part of the responsibility that I have as a historian telling these stories is to take on part of that violence. Um, that's part of the job, unfortunately for me and for lots of people. I'm usually the only person of color in an archive too in France. Um, but part of that is a responsibility that I believe um, gives me the right to, to tell these stories. Um, I have seen all kinds of things in the archive that I have never shared and will never share because, you know, when is enough enough? So um, I'm glad that I saw them. I'm horrified that I saw them. Um, but I also want to be really clear that although I, you know, I live in America. I have been trained in um, what many people would consider a very Eurocentric way. I also was brought up, you know, with Black feminist thought and critical race theory. Those are the kinds of things that gave me the ability to tell the stories about the documents I see. History showed me where to go, but it's the other places <laughs> that showed me what to do with what I found. So I always expect archives to be violent. I've never walked into one that has not been violent in terms of um, what I've seen, um, what I'm looking for. And so that is it's sort of a part of my archival approach. Um, my job, I hope, is to give some context to what I'm seeing and to have the kind of knowledge to know. Um, of course, this person thought that he was being um, objective when he put this in the archive. Um, here's why he's not. Yes. 
I, that resonates with me a lot, uh, how you're describing it, uh, Robin. And um, maybe it's, we can narrow it, it down to a sense that if you're personally tied to what you're going to, to what is in the archive in some way, then the expectation going in beforehand is that it's going to be violent. I think that's very different than a lot of archivists that are going into the archive. And I think that is interesting. That is very interesting on its own. Um, and I also share this feeling of responsibility that uh, because of my training as an art historian and also in, in art policy, so also maybe reading between the lines and strategizing in how things are, or, or reading between the lines of strategizing documents, um, I feel the responsibility to create more a polyvocal approach of the archives that we put the objectivity to the test by more and more people, and uh, and by doing so, hopefully showing the narratives that are ingrained in it intentionally or not. And I think that by doing so, I hope that I can also, I can make it more approachable or, or more less terrifying to go in the archives if people see that, hey, if she's doing it with no, no, no archival knowledge specifically, uh, but she's raising the questions anyway, uh, people feel more open to do so as well, from the inside and outside. I think it doesn't always have to be like in these walls of these ivory towers or, or under street level depots, I don't know. Um, it can be outside of it as well, to get the outside perspectives in. Yes. Yeah, and I'm very interested in, in, in what both of you raise here, because I, um, going into the archive, don't have that experience. Um, right. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm aware, I'm obviously aware that, that this is an experience that many people have. Um, but hearing both of you talk about it in such a succinct and clear way, um, helps me sort of think through about the way I approach these archives. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I just don't have that experience. So I, I don't, I don't identify with anti-colonial activism. I don't identify with, uh, with Belgian colonials who uh, occupied parts of Congo, right? So for me, going into the archive is a very objective experience or an experience that is very, um, yeah, very academic in a way. And I, I yeah, that, I mean, it's a very, it's very interesting for you to raise this. There's a lot of, there's a lot of privilege in being able to just go into an archive and say, I'm looking for this and have somebody hand you a box. Um, as somebody who, um, walked into archives in the beginning and said, I'm looking for black women and had every single person I talked to say, we don't have those here. Um, it is exhausting. The archives are exhausting. Like I get so frustrated and I'm, I don't mean this at you directly, but I get so frustrated when people are like, I just love the archives. I hate them. You know, I hate them, but I have to use them. Right. But I have to steal myself every single time I walk into one. 
right? It, do I get somebody who decides um, they don't like black people today? Um, are do they do are they hiding all their stuff on on Africans? You know, are they going to tell me slavery didn't exist on French soil? Like, I have to be prepared. Not only do I have to be prepared for all those scenarios, I have to work out the responses to those scenarios in English and then translate them into my head in French and then be ready to talk, right? Yeah. It's maddening. Like the idea I could just walk into, no, that's not true. I walked into one archive that worked and it was in Martinique. That was the only place where I was just like, yep, okay, here we go, let's do this. France, never. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I hear uh, Robin reacting, but, uh, and also hearing uh, Frank say that, that our, our reactions are, are, are interesting. To me, flipping the script, actually, I think, how, how can you not take your, and not, not directly uh, mentor towards you, but no, what you say about not ad identifying with the colonial history I think that ties into whiteness as a construct to do depersonalize from what what you have in front of you, uh, and to um, and with a, going in with an objective notion. While I'll ca I can't untie that within myself, like I can't untie that that three of my grandparents were uh, who came here because uh, of colonization. Yeah, you know. Uh, even though a part of me is white, I'm always not, I'm never not thinking when engaging with the archive about this inner conflict, but also my own positionality, but also the positionality who, of, uh, of the people that tell me about what's in the archive and guide me through it. So it, it amazes me that that's possible. <laughs> I wanted to build on that because <laughs> I think this is so important for listeners and for students to hear, actually. And um, and also it, it picks up on, you know, Saeed's point, but also the a scholar Gloria Wecker who talks about, you know, the, the way the archives are even put together. And I think I don't have the same experiential position as you, Robin, or you, Stevie, and that is just a true thing. I do have the experience of not speaking the language, and I do have the experience of working in the police archives and just being confronted with the surveillance state, right? And you just, there's this, I don't know, Frank, I did, I think it's astonishing to see the workings of the state as they are reflected in archives and to see the way that people are ordered and arranged and set in categories. And for me as a French historian, this is so obvious when you go to the, the Aix-en-Provence, the Archive d'Outremer, the, the overseas archives, because they literally have file numbers and categories for this type of colonial subject and this type of colonial subject that has citizenship. And then the police archives, they're surveilling North Africans so heavily and they're surveilling um, colonial subjects so heavily and I also looked at African Americans who are not surveilled in France to the same extent so I cannot relate experientially and nevertheless I was astonished and angered actually and I felt almost when I was reading some of the community meetings And then I read them because a spy had spied on people and betrayed their colleagues and taken the reports of the community meetings to the police. I was so angry, you know, but it's, it is a very different experiential position, but it reveals 
the ordering and the colonial stuff in the archives. Um, and that was one of the traces of empire that I really saw directly in there. Yeah, if we, if we talk about these traces of empire, um, I now have to think of an example that I, I, I was in a, in a program or, or workshop with fellow archivists, or I'm not an archivist still, but, <laughs> but uh, the, um, and we, there was this investigation or, or project presented called Transcribus or Transcribus uh, that's uh, allowed 17th and 18th century handwriting to be translated uh, in uh, or written out loud or being digitalized so people could search for words and tie information together like kilometers of archive from colonial do- documents from the Dutch VOC. Well, and that was presented as a form of, um, as maybe an answer to decolonization. And I think that um, as an exercise, what the possibilities of this particular program and this project was, we were asked to 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 link certain uh, labels to people in the, uh, are, who are, were described in the archives. And one of the things that was happening, it, it, it regarded a document about uh, enslaved people from the Dutch, former Dutch East Indies colony that were described by their, not, not by their gender, by, by a gender uh, and a location, but also their skin color. And... I thought that was that practice and the labeling and being asked to label was very violent to me, but that was not for the rest of the group. And uh, it's not only that the violence is in the document itself, because we're talking about enslaved people and we're talking about uh, how they are priced and depending on their skin color and their gender, what their price is. That is, of course, very violent. But also, with my knowledge, my personal experience and my lived experience, knowing that in what we now call Indonesia, that there were many different gender identities that people identified with. And we now, with our our lens, are saying, hey, it's described as male or female, so we categorize it uh, as such, while not even questioning our own biases and lenses. Uh, and I think me being there, it felt like an accident. But in the end, uh, to me, it felt like an accident. I wasn't supposed to be there. But in the end, people sort of thanked me for opening their eyes. Well, I think I feel I was suffering in that very mo- moment. Um, and that's why I was thinking about the thought-provoking exercise. Depends on who you're asking. But for me, there's a way different necessity of opening this up and contextualizing this than people who who depersonalize from it. So yeah, that's what I think says a lot about how these traces are not only in what is described and in what we see or the actual object, but also how we categorize it, how we label it, how we highlight the story or don't or hide it away uh, or who has access or who grants the access. I think these are all traces of colonialism or imperialism. Or can be at least. I mean, there's there's one thing I I, I wanted to just think. Hearing you talk about this, I 
saying that I had a completely objective attitude going in, into the archive is not really true when I'm sort of thinking about this. I, I clearly remember going to Ghana for the first time and then going to the archive. And I felt really, um, it's difficult to sort of describe, but I felt really uncomfortable, I guess, uh, asking um, uh, asking the people that worked there to get things for me. I don't, I don't even know how to, how to really phrase this. Um, but I, I remember being generally uncomfortable about that because uh, there was this sort of this, this, this sense of, you know, this is not my, is this my history? You know, what, what am I going to do with it? I, I did have that experience, but, but in, in sort of the, the, the first time going into um, an African archive. But not a European one. Not a European one. No. Yeah. So, I mean, Stevie, you've talked to us about actually that really interesting and challenging process, but you are tackling this in the Sounds Familiar project. You are looking at your own institution and beginning to open it up. Could you? Because I was thinking about how, Robin, in your work, you state the problem you find the traces and you tell the stories of these women, amazing women, Ulrika, um, Sarah Bat, um, Batman, and, um, uh, sorry, Dura, Jean Duvel. So I guess I wanted to think about what, how do we open the archives? How do we reflect the voices? And Stevie, I know you're working on a project doing precisely this. Could you, what, what is that? Yeah, we're still figuring this out. <laughs> and um, I don't want to give the idea that I have the answers. I don't. But at least I think it's time that we raise these questions in open, uh, very openly and in tra full transparency, uh, transparency. But also it has to come with accountability as well. And that's what I'm advocating for, that this criticality, that there's this, uh, this is not the only conversation that's happening about this topic, you know, or, 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 or about or, uh, around this topic. Uh, there's, there's always been criticality, but I think the voices are getting louder and are being invited into the institutions. And to go back to what was said earlier, um, how can we get the institutions on board and are they ready to be held accountable? And uh, how do you say it? In Dutch, we say are ready to kleurbekennen, uh, actually, to, to show their true colors. Because I want to stay away from the notion of archives as a objective source of information. It's not. It's a narrative uh, that's a dominant narrative, but every story has someone who, who tells it. And I think normally in the archives, especially in the West, I think the people who tell these stories look a lot like each other. And I think with including more narratives and more people who contextualize it and question every step of the process that we take for granted, I, can th I think we can try to give a more complete overview of how we tell the story of a nation and what we don't tell. And also, I hope that it's, it's becoming, it, it will become an opportunity to add stories to the, 
to this narrative to make a more complete history. Because the reality is most archives are not a reflection of who, take this as an example, but are not, an, uh, are not a reflection who are living in the Netherlands nowadays. And that says a lot about who is in charge in the process of archiving the story of a country, the history of a country. So yeah, I think that should be more democratic. And I'm in trying to investigate what our biases are, what our obstacles are, um, to become a more accurate representation of the country that we are now. Um, but it's not easy. <laughs> and it's not... Uh, not everyone understand, understands the urgency. But I hope we'll get there. I think with raising their question, step one. I mean, Robin, just to, you did magnificent work. So to rephrase my question or to, to redirect it, I guess, you did uncover traces. You did tell stories. How did you get around the archival limitations? Um, by accident. It took <laughs> me, I think, I think I wasted the first year because I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what keywords to use. I didn't know what to look for. And then as I started finding things, I realized I needed to ask for them in different ways. And that goes back to Stevie's conversation about sort of tagging. You know, I don't get, I don't have the luxury of saying I'd like to look for, you know, traces of black women. What I have to do is say, you know, who is in charge of slavery? That's the minister of the Marine. So can I see your, you know, um, files on uh, property, right? There are, um, there are ways of sort of getting to what I wanted that I couldn't figure out at the beginning. Um, because they're human to me, but they clearly weren't to the people tagging them in the archives. Um, there were, um, I wasted a lot of time, which I think is in retrospect, a very good thing, um, because it taught me how to look. But one of the things that I did or tried to do was I treated every black woman that I saw in the archives as significant. I wrote down whatever I could about them. Um, not often a name, usually an occupation or, uh, you know, sometimes an age, sometimes, you know, if they were a person of color, if they were black, um, if they were free or enslaved, but that I took them seriously in the archive. They were already in the archive. I just took them seriously when I found them. And that I think is an important distinction because we are talking about archives as dominant spaces. Um, I don't, I think it's very significant that France chose to move their ar uh, colonial archives out of Paris proper. But the fact of the matter is, is um, in doing that, um, they're still in the archive. It just, um, people like me have to work a lot harder to find them. But once I got it in my mind, uh, that they were in there and I just needed to figure out how to do it. I just started asking for boxes. I looked at thousands of boxes. I think, um, thousands of them were useless, but I came across, you know, the word negresse. I came and I thought, okay, keyword, you know, I came across femme du couleur. I came across, um, the language that the French were using. Right. And so that helped me sort of find. Uh, my way a little bit, but it was, I treated the women that I was looking for and I, I couldn't write on most of them because there wasn't anything left except for, um, 
you know, a title and maybe an age and skin color, but I treated every one of them as if they were significant because they are significant, like period, not just to me, they're important. And the fact that the archive has gone to such lengths to purge them and that they still exist is significant, right? And so, you know, I have changed the way I do history. Um, you know, one of the fun parts of my job is I don't care if people are telling the truth or not. Um, I don't ever walk into an archive thinking they are, but I almost, I am gleeful about figuring out where they're lying because for me, it's not about the women that I write about. It is what um, people in charge need you to believe about these women. And that is a different project. And as a historical project, um, I think more often than not allows me to do the work. If I was sort of, um, if I was sort of steeped in the humiliation and degradation and the violence of these women all the time, um, I would not be able to do the work. And so, um, you know, one, it takes me a long time to do this work because it's very painful, but it also is, I can read this and not think about the women that the nonsense that's being written are directed at. I think about what are white Frenchmen and women doing thinking they can use this body for whatever means they're trying to use it, right? And so, you know, when I wrote the book, I thought I failed. You know, I went into the book thinking I wanted to hear these women speak. Um, and I was so excited about it. And I realized I probably wasn't going to hear that. Um, and so in many ways, it became a way of turning the gaze, the white gaze back upon itself and showing, wow, what lengths will these, are these people willing to go to, to keep a dominant narrative going? So in that conversation, you see the dominant narrative, you see it as, um, as a thread that is very, very clear. And when you talk about the thread of a dominant narrative, um, that reads very differently than the narrative, right? I'm saying, you know, I, I frequently read things and go, what are you doing? Like, what are you trying to do here, right? And I think that that is an important exercise for historians to be forced to look at the person writing, look at the person talking um, and say, what are you doing? <laughs> That to me is how we get to where we hopefully want to go. Um, but I never for a moment throughout all of the work that I did thought of these women as anything other than central to a, a specific conversation about France in the 19th century, period. Now, I didn't know how, I didn't know why, but I knew these women were popping up over and over and over again, and no one seemed to care. And so for me, it was part of, you know, I remember, um, Steve, you were talking about art history. I remember looking at a painting and somebody said, oh, well, the black girl's only there so they can, you know, so the painter can um, show that he understands how to work lightness and darkness. And I thought, well, that's not the only reason that she's there, right? And so I see the world, I see France differently from a lot of people, not everybody. There are a lot of people doing this work, but I see it differently. And it 
it was the moment that I realized I'm seeing things that other people either aren't seeing or don't care that they're seeing it, that I was able to actually start doing my work. I thought, just, just, you know, do the work. Like nobody else has written about the black girl in the corner of this painting. So that's what you're doing. Incredibly, incredibly interesting. Um, incredibly innovative as well. I mean, I think we can all, I mean, I think that's something that we should maybe stress a little bit more that, that these projects are incredibly innovative. Um, you talk about um, uh, methodology, about your experience going into the archive, but uh, ultimately you are both producing work that is incredibly innovative and interesting um, and that is helping us rethink a lot of aspects of history in the global north and the global south. So um, we are wondering what what are sort of... Um, is there still an, an upcoming project uh, that you are excited about that you want to tell us about? Or maybe alternatively, is there a project that you really want to work on but don't have time for? Um, what are sort of, what is what does the future sort of hold in terms of research? Uh, Stevie, maybe? Yeah, first maybe going back to what you were saying about uh, this project being innovative. I think it depends on who I'm telling this. Because I think I'm heavily relying on, on the legacy that a lot of critical thinkers and people from the colonial diaspora have questioned in many forms and ways uh, before me, way before me, before I was born. Um, and um, this is maybe to, 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 to my institute where I, where I work and to the people that work there now, it's innovative, but the criticality is always there. It always has been there. But giving money or resources or uh, encapsulating it in, in policy as something that is urgent, I think that is the part that is relatively new. If we talk about things that uh, about the project or, or what I would like to see follow as an extension of it. I would like to see that national institute, especially national institutes, that are also a pillar in telling the story of a nation and take an active role in it, rather than if they want it or not, or recognize it or not. Um, I would like to see that they make resources available for people to to get the information and access and tools to produce the knowledge that they want and find interesting. Not to benefit the institutions, but as a form of um, seeing that you lack these voices to, to be included or this criticality to be uh, raised in such a level. I would like to see people from the Dutch colonial diaspora who are living here, maybe especially from my generation, uh, who are thinking about belonging, who are, are, are trying to look for connection about their heritage, but don't see that reflected in media or, or yet or not enough or only from a certain perspective. I would like to see them have all the tools and resources and freedom to raise the questions uh, that they want in the archives and pull out 
what they want on the, in their ways. But also, hopefully, um, being able to, to rethink all uh, our ways of archiving uh, and maybe changing it all together. But maybe that's utopian of me to think. But <laughs> I, I don't know. That is just what, uh, what I would like to see. <laughs> wow. You know, I, this conversation has been um, enlightening and, and very helpful to me and helpful sort of to my spirit. Um, you know, I read backwards. I've always read backwards. Um, you know, my professors thought, um, you know, I like I did all the primary primary stuff first because that's all I cared about and then you know my professors were like well you have to go back and put the French part in there and I thought no okay um because that's not what sort of grabbed um and captured my attention you know I've been thinking about this idea of you know archives as sites of memory and how for me they were always also sites of manipulation um but I think here the thing that is most compelling to me right now as a historian, I just wrote a blog entry about it. I think it's coming out soon. That was, um, that I think I entitled it, bring um, ourselves with us. To, um, this idea that I hope that from the training side, that we train historians uh, to bring themselves with them to the archives, right? And that they don't get this notion that certain bodies are objective and certain bodies are not. Um, I think that has to do with how we train historians. You know, I think it has something to do with how we use or don't use the eye as if the eye is not present everywhere in what we're writing. Right. So, you know, this, the things that Frank brought up, the things that Stevie, you know, that Stevie brought up are just sort of making my mind move and making me realize that it is a topic for me that um, I need to write more about. You know, I was nervous about writing the blog article that I did because I thought exactly, um, this is gonna sound really precious or self-indulgent and it's not. For a lot of scholars going into these violent spaces, it will be the difference between them surviving there or not. And I think as scholars, we have a responsibility to train them up properly to at least be ready for that. So, um, you know, I've sat on many panels about, you know, diversity and racism and equity in French history, and they're exhausting. They're exhausting because all of the work, you know, so much of the work is being done by the people who are already experiencing those violent spaces. Um, so I hope this conversation for folks who haven't thought about some of these issues, I hope it, I hope it causes them to sort of sit and ponder a little bit. And I'm really grateful to you all for, uh, making that possible. You know, um, Frank said something earlier. I'm, I'm just not ignoring your question, Frank. Um, but you said something earlier that I really don't want to let go. And that was, um, your feelings of discomfort in the archives. Um, in Ghana and not in Europe. And me remembering um, a conversation that I had in Martinique um, versus in Europe. And 
being in a position where I don't know if I'm not, you know, in Europe, I don't know if I'm not getting documents because they don't care about my topic, uh, because they don't like me personally, you know, you have to, you have to go through all these things or there's nothing there versus walking into an archive in Martinique being, um, um, surrounded by black people, um, telling them my topic, having them get excited about my topic and, you know, bring me things. And I thought, wow, is this what it's like for other people when they go to the archives where they're like, I was just like, and I was there with a couple of other people who were white, who were just sitting there. And I was like, it sucks, doesn't it? You know, it sucks to just be sort of ignored over there in the corner, doesn't it? Um, but I had, I had one of my most profound moments there. And that was, I was doing research, which I'm working on now. See, I got to it, right? Um, I'm doing some research on uh, Empress Josephine's mother, um, who had um, a bondswoman named Emily who tried to kill her. And so that's why I was in Martinique to get the trial transcripts. And there were three or four um, young black kids in there, you know, 15, 16. Um, and I was talking to a colleague in English and um, they started talking to me in English. And I said, well, I'll let you talk to me in English. If you let me talk to you in French, we can practice. And um, they said, they asked me what I was doing there. And I said, I was looking for what I was looking for. And one of them said, you know, there aren't important black people in the archives. And I said, yes, there is. You know, you're here, I'm here, and there's lots of different stories here. And they were impressed, I think, more that I had come from so far away to study someone there, right? And I remember being really sad and um, I said, you know, if you write me, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm working on. And, you know, if you write me in English, I'll write you back in French and we can practice. And um, I gave them my card and we, you know, we chatted for a while and they went back to what they were doing. I did what I was doing. And like when I got in the Uber to go back to the hotel, I just started crying. You know, I was like, what are we doing or not doing to have these children come into an archive where they live and not think there's anybody of importance in it. Right. So, um, you know, the work that I do is in the archive, it's out of the archive. It's dealing with the archivist. It's dealing with the people in the archive. Um, it's dealing with so many things. And so I like to remind people of that when they're like, why does this take so long? And it's like, cause we're exhausted. That's why. Um, so um, I'm working on this project that partially takes place in Martinique, partially takes place in Saint-Domingue, and partially takes place in Paris. Um, um, I will write about Black women for the rest of my career um, without question. Um, I'm so honored that these women pop up in the archives and let me find them um, that I, I can't imagine doing any other kind of work. And it's not because I think I'm doing something special. It's that their stories are amazing. And I want people to read about this, their stories. Um, 
you know, I'm really humbled that people bought the book and read it and liked it. Um, but at the end of the day, it had very little to do with me. It had everything to do with Jean Duval. It had everything to do with Orca and had everything to do with Sarah Bartman, that their stories were compelling and amazing. And it was a privilege to get to write about them. It's a privilege that, that you got to research and those, those histories of these women. But also it shows to me like how humbling you talk uh, about this with your lived experience, with your deep investment in, in this, that you're the one who should tell the stories as well. And I think that is something that I find very much important. <laughs> I was about to say, I feel tremendously privileged and I know I have learned and rarely has an hour flown by so pleasantly. I know. Um, and and with difficulty as well, let's not skip over. It is amazing, enlightening, exciting and difficult. And I want to thank you for sitting with us and sitting with these stories and doing that work because I know it's work and I see that and I appreciate it and our listeners will appreciate it too. Uh, and I want to thank you both for bringing yourselves to the archives, to this podcast, for flipping the script with us, for bringing these real historical women who existed independently of their representations, to quote Robin Mitchell, who lived in France, who walked along cobblestones, who had favorite patisseries, who spoke to people and people spoke back to them. I want to thank you for speaking with them and releasing their voices today and for doing that with us. We are greatly honored by both of your company and we will drop the links in our media uh social media and we will let you know when we have edited this but uh for now i just want to say thank you very much i will not keep any more of your valuable time but thank you so much thank you very much thank too. you for the invitation thank you for joining us on this, our final episode of the Unsettling Knowledge podcast for this academic year. Thank you to all who've been listening to our podcast. For this week's episode, be sure to check out the information box for links to Robin Mitchell and Stevie Knowlton's upcoming projects, and for this week's reading list and food for thought. A big thank you to Robin and Stevie for speaking with us today as well as Melina Yelanki and Eden Simpson, who have been working away on production to help create this episode and the whole series. And a special thank you to today's, to today's brilliant and energetic co-host, Frank Garretts. Yes, thank you all for listening to this year's series of the Unsettling Knowledge podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, as we will be remaining active in promoting our older episodes and who knows, we may have a special summer episode in the pipeline. Ooh, exciting. My name is Rachel Gillette. My name is Frank Garretts, and this was Unsettling Knowledge, Decolonizing the Archives.